here's how it's going to play out. You execution guys, you're paying our salaries. You are the most, you're the guys shoveling the coal into the engines of the Titanic. Well, these guys over here, are they're going to feel like you to you that they're like on the promenade deck. But, but we can't make it without the executors. And you innovators, you know, unless you appreciate those executors, we don't have a company. But you executors, the fact that you're still going to be employed in five years, it's because these innovators are going to be building new stuff that we haven't even thought about yet. And so we need to work together because you're going to need stuff from each other. Hello and welcome to The Melting Pot. I'm your host, Dominic Monkhouse. The Melting Pot is a result of my hunger and curiosity for optimizing business performance, exploring corporate culture, customer addiction, and building high-performing teams. It's full of advice from my guests, entrepreneurs, fellow business authors, and examples from some of my work over the last few years, coaching the CEOs and leadership teams of some amazingly successful tech firms. The Melting Pot is my attempt to synthesize what I've learned along the way, to help you build a highly scalable business and realize the potential of your life's work. If you enjoy the episode, head over to monkhouseandcompany.com forward slash podcast to find today's show notes and more editions of The Melting Pot. While you're there, if you subscribe to the newsletter, you can pick up a copy of my new book, Plan B, How to Scale Your Technology Business Faster and Achieve Plan A. Enjoy. Hello, today I am talking to a Silicon Valley legend or a startup legend even, global startup legend. Today I'm talking with Steve Black. Steve did eight high technology startups. He retired in 1999 after having eight, eight tech startups under his belt and he codified what had worked and what hadn't worked. He developed a thing called customer development and he codified that in a book called The Four Steps to the Epiphany. He then started teaching a course at Stanford based on what he had codified around startups and what makes them what makes the successful ones successful. And one of the guys on his course was a chap called Eric Ries. Eric Ries went on to write a book called The Lean Startup. And then Harvard Business Review covered that book and they were on the front page of Harvard Business Review in Why Lean Startup Changes Everything. And so now we had a way in which businesses or startups could plan their evolution and attempt to raise money and attempt to raise another round of money. Steve brought his thing of customer development to the table. Eric built on that. And then Alex Osterwilder came along with business model canvas, which was how do we put all this stuff on one page? And so we're going to chat today with Steve about, you know, what is the job of a CEO? Um, what is customer development? Uh, why is innovation hard? Why do businesses, why do established businesses hit a plateau? Great conversation, loads to learn. I'm sure you'll enjoy it as much as I did. Hi, I'm Steve Blank. I'm a retired serial entrepreneur. I'm the co-creator of the Lean Startup Methodology. Uh, uh, let's see, I teach at Stanford. Um, I'm the uh, author of the Lean Launchpad class, uh, National Science Foundation's uh, i and co-creator of uh, Hacking for Defense, a series of classes at Stanford. Fantastic. And... What I was trying to pick your brains about today was that the codification, that lean startup revolution that you started. Did you start the revolution or did you just point out that it was happening? 
Oh no, I I started it. <laughs> uh, you know, you could point to me, and then then Eric Reese, and then Alexander Osterwalder, and it's the it's basically the three of us. Then now, you know, hundreds, thousands of people have written books since then. But I I think you could point to a single book and date that you know the aha moment happens, and it happened for me because I had been a serial entrepreneur for twenty one years, which is a fancy word for saying i i did startups until i was they either cratered or succeeded and until i finally went home and then when i did go home um i i did one of those rare things which is i actually was not only reflective and and interested in a retrospective of my career i was interested in how it fit into the greater industry of of how startups were built and funded and that's when I had an insight. And the insight, which became something called customer development, was pretty simple. The insight was there are no facts inside your building, so get the hell outside. And that was one of the key differences between winners and losers. The other insight, um, which Eric Reese had. Um, <laughs> which, which is just, it's incredible. You know, you might have to talk to some customers to be successful. Well, you know, if, if you think about it, there were most people don't in the 20th century, but you should, your listeners should remember the way you built startups is implicitly, I don't think they've ever said these exact words, but implicitly all my investors and almost everybody else's basically told startups, you were nothing more than a smaller version of a large company, uh-huh. which meant that, you know, everything a large company did, we want you guys to do because obviously they're large. We want you to be large, so why don't you write a business plan and why don't you give us a five-year forecast? That is, we want you to predict the future um, <laughs> based on no facts, and then we want you to um, hire sales, marketing, business development on day one, and then you also need to hire a VP of engineering, but they need to build the product uh, based on your fantasy, and we're going to lock all the engineers in the room in a year later or two because we didn't have any open source or a year or two later, um, you'll ship the product. And the only problem will be is the building big enough to hold all the bags of money that are going to come. And, and that was the, and that was the magic formula. And of course, in hindsight, we kind of laugh at the stupidity of everybody, but no one was really stupid. We just had no other methodology. It's a, it's important to remember it by the, by the last part of the 20th century, business schools that had been around since the beginning of the early 1900s. And that's where kind of this execution stack of management stack of, of tools had come from. And, you know, we had great tools for, for um, organizing large corporations, for how to do strategy, how to do all this stuff. And in a business school, a startup, a startup was just thought of as a smaller version of you know, people in their garage who will eventually, if they were good enough by magic, somehow turn into a big company. But no one was working on explicit tools. No one had noticed, and here was the big idea. No one had noticed that large companies execute business models, but startups search for them. And no one had ever articulated this distinction between search and execution before, until I raised my hand and said, well, wait a minute. These are very different things. And again, we have tons of tools for execution, but we have no tools or very few that were actually modeled for search. And so at the time, I read all the literature. I mean, everything that existed, academic and, and, and you know, popular literature on large company innovation. And there was almost no literature 
on how startups innovated. I mean, none. It, it's kind of crazy now to think about that. So I wrote a book called The Four Steps of the Epiphany, which kind of pointed this out and invented a method of getting out of the building and saying, gee, you know, one of the key differences in searching for a business model is on day one, you know, you're actually building a religious organization. It's a faith-based enterprise. That is yeah. all you have is a set of beliefs or, or assumptions or a fancy word is hypotheses or guesses. But there's no way that you're smarter than the collective intelligence of your potential customers as you're sitting inside your building. So why don't you get the heck out and talk to those people, you know, before you start and while you're building things, rather than at the end when you ship the product. You could save a lot of time. And I postulated that if you did that, you'd be able to change what you're building based on what you're learning. I drew kind of a, a feedback circle, which Eric Reese later named uh, the pivot. And I, I also postulated that what we ought to be building is instead of the whole product, I said, um, you know, why don't we just build the minimum feature set, which Eric renamed later the minimum viable product. Much yeah. better name. He did, he did much better name. <laughs> but, then, but then Eric Reese became my first student when I started teaching this at Berkeley. I'm not my first. He was in one of the early classes, and then I funded his company, and he became the first practitioner of, of uh, customer development ever, except he added something which I had missed, and that was – in the 20th century, we were building products with waterfall engineering, a serial process, step-by-step. Step. Yeah. And Eric said, Steve, you know, software people are starting to build products with, uh, with agile engineering, uh, incrementally and iterative. That's a perfect match made in heaven for customer development. And so, boom, we now had two components of, of what became Lean, customer development and our, Eric's observation of agile, and plus his practice of actually doing it. And then when I was teaching at Stanford, we started teaching some of these ideas. Alexander Osterwalder came out with a, uh, the book called Business Model Generation when he invented what was called the Business Model Canvas, a fancy way to kind of, on a single piece of paper, to put up a diagram of about 80 to 90% of what every new venture needs to know. Who are your customers? You know, what are you building for them? What's the distribution channel? How to get, keep, and grow them? That is nine boxes. And all of a sudden, those three pieces, I declared, that's the lean startup. And, and then the Harvard Business Review put it on its cover, for God's sake, and said, why the lean startup changes everything. But it happened. And so, you know, as I said, hundreds or maybe thousands of books are now out on lean something and, and you know, actual everything. And, and, uh, and this idea has legs, I guess. I, it's, it's been surprising that... It's been enhanced, but it hasn't been replaced because it might be just a set of fundamental truths. So I'm done babbling. That's, that's all I have well, to I, say. I'm going now. <laughs> but I, but I, I am uh, still struck by how many people I meet that either don't know them, don't understand them, or don't practice them. You know, I, I, meet, companies, I meet companies all the time who uh, have an engineering team that sits in a dark room and builds something and then they give it to sales and say, go sell this. And then, and then it does, and then, and then the bags of money don't come rolling in. You know, that's the natural tendency of a, of a founding team is not to do, not to do lean. 
I mean, the hardest part of lean is fighting your own instincts. Because you think about it, when you're a founder, you believe, you're convinced, and you have to be convinced to, to found a company against all odds, against all the naysayers, et cetera. You have to be a true, true believer. You have to convince yourself you're a visionary. The, the only way you'll do lean is if you'll actually accept the fact that 99% of visionaries are hallucinating. It's a big <laughs> idea. Um, so so the, the only way you'll adopt this methodology, which is counter to your instincts of, of course, I'm right, is to have a tiny little voice in the back of your head that says, well, what if I'm wrong? And, and is there a way to kind of prove that I'm right? If, if you can't have that conversation with yourself and or your investors, you'll go with your natural instincts, which is I'm the visionary. I had to fight so hard to get funded and, and hire these people. Screw it. We're just building X rather than, yeah, I, I still believe I'm a visionary, but a little voice in the back of my head should say, yeah, but why don't I run some cheap and fast experiments just to prove whether I'm right to myself, if not my investors. And I'm surprised. And I'm not really over time. I guess at first I was surprised, just just like you, how many people weren't doing something so simple because it's not technically hard. But it's counter to the DNA of what drives founders, right? It's it's This is a passion and, and driven business. It's not a – startups are not run by accountants. Uh, they're run by artists. And and to tell somebody that perhaps before you paint the Sistine Chapel, you maybe want to try it out in the corner first, see if the if they got the paint right or something else. It's kind of hard. Well, I, it's it's funny because I, you know, I have conversations. I, I remember uh, a good friend of mine, Barnaby Lashbrook. You know, he had a business idea, so he 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 crafted some Google ads to see whether he could persuade enough people to click on an ad. He didn't have a product. He just wanted to see whether his hypothesis around being the, that the idea was interesting enough for people to click. And he didn't have to spend very much money to prove that to himself. And then he set up a business. But so many other people do it the other way around, which is they create what they think is the perfect business. And in Eric's book, there's a whole load of examples where, you know, they, they think they're going to have to write some code that when they test with customers, they don't have to write the code at all because the customers don't value it or are quite happy with the hack. But is it the mind of software developers that's different from the mind of sales and marketing people? Or is it that you've, ha- you've persuaded yourself that you're right and therefore you don't want to go and ask people and find out that you might be wrong? So most people are happy. So yes to what you said. Plus, most people are comfortable with certainty, right? Most people don't live their lives comfort, comfortable in chaos and uncertainty. That's not how most of us live our lives. A few of us are crazy enough to go, wow, that's, that's incredibly exciting. And there is a seriously a, a type of person. In fact, if you've grown up in a dysfunctional family, you have much better odds, probably for the first time in your life, um, in anything, but uh, succeeding as a founder of a startup than someone who's grown up you know, in a, in a normal household. Why? Because in a, if you're a survivor of a dysfunctional family, you've, you've grown up with chaos and uncertainty your whole life, and you've managed to develop some skills, and maybe it's just hardwired into brain chemistry of survivors, that allows you to shut out everything except uh, those important for survival, which, by the way, is 
it's the cruelest but most most effective training ground for world-class entrepreneurs. Now, if you go through the history of, of names that you can name of, uh, of founders of uh, unicorns and, and larger in terms of startups and you read about their parents and upbringing, you go, wow, this is a list of damaged people. And it turns out that actually um, is one of their strengths. It turns out it's also uh, as the company scales, they tend to throw hand grenades into their own organization to keep the dysfunction going. Because uh, <laughs> Again, uh, you could see it because they're uncomfortable with day-to-day, you know, solidity. But but that's a sidebar, but worth, worth noting. Um, is, that, is, that, is that because one of their skills is, is that it gets boring? Because there's less chaos, and therefore, and therefore, they, their skill is their 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 self worth is tied up in the surviving in chaos, and so without the chaos, that the whole thing, the whole you know, they lose their self feedback loop. Yes, and and you know, art, um, and again, this is uh, very, uh, obviously a bell curve of, of behavior, and and to your listeners, it's. Not that you go out and need to find a dysfunctional family to become a founder, um, <laughs> but it's a, it gives hope to those of us who who grew up that way. It, it's it's again it's it, it's actually a, a a valuable skill because no startup you know plays out like some some business school class. It never does, or like some Harvard case study. And you know stuff breaks all the time. You're Co-founder quits, your largest customer changes their mind, your investors pull their funding around or what. I mean, you know, nothing plays out like it does. Or even when you're scaling, um, competitors steal your best customers or whatever engineers. And, and so if you're not prepared for that, you have to learn on the job. And, and again, you can. But if you had some training and I use dysfunctional families, by the way, as a proxy for, you know, people who've been um, leaders in war zones actually make uh, uh, great CEOs or people who come a long way of, from some village in India or South South Asia or something and have clawed their way up to, I mean, those those people have gone through that same kind of idea of, of not just having it handed to them or um, as they grew up. It just makes them um, better equipped, I think, to, to deal with the day-to-day uh, chaos and uncertainty. It also makes it harder, as I said, for them to transition to be leaders at scale, because at scale, you need different skills. That is, you go from searching for a business model to, to kind of building systems and, and, uh, and departments and functions to, you know, like growth for thousands or tens of thousands of people. Those require um, people to kind of turn the switch about different skill sets, which is why we see early stage founders kind of fall off. Uh, kind of fall off the ladder, uh, not because they've become dumber, but skill sets required and from, from each stage uh, uh, change. And is that a lack of a personal awareness or is it that it's just, it's just an inability to change, even though they can see that they need to? Oh, no, it's, it's, a, it's a lack of, number one, no investor wants to tell their founders, uh, we're going to fire you when you actually reach the promised land. Seriously. Um, and therefore, most founders have no insight because investors don't tell them. And, and by the way, 95% of them don't want to hear it anyway, is that when you reach scale, everything that made you successful here is actually going to get in your way, both emotionally, personally, and lack of skills. For I mean, it's historically why people brought in, you know, suits, uh, senior management teams, 
nowadays, you know, we figured out that it's um, it's better to keep the founders with all, all their flaws, uh, but kind of staff up, you know, uh, the organization with, with people who actually do know how to scale. But there are consequences of doing that as well. But also, also, I suppose when you said they won't listen, you know, that that goes back to the main mindset of somebody who's prepared to create a startup that, you know, they believe they believe themselves. And so if you say, you know, there's a 30% chance that you won't make it because you won't be able to change as the business scales, they'll go, oh, that's okay. I'm going to be in that 30. I'm going to be in that 20. I'm going to be in that 10. They would immediately just say, okay, that's for the other guys. One of the things we miss is not understanding the, the, the mental makeup of a founder and why. Um, and, and I'm not talking about, you know, making a better version of X or Y. I'm talking about uh, people who see things that other people don't, uh, disruptive things. Those founders are closer to artists than any other profession. And I've said it before, those founders are not accountants. Accountants don't create the disruptive startups. And this is not a diss on accountants. It's just the mindsets of, of artists are very different than the mindsets of you and I. People who create music or paintings or write literature or, you know, uh, do any of those sculptures. Um, you and I could pick up a paintbrush and you and I could, you know, use a, you know, write and you and I could do X or Y. But when we're in the presence of somebody who creates something that leaves us speechless, we know that there's a class of people who are hardwired to do something extraordinary that we just can't. And if you hang out with enough artists or musicians or whatever who are really good at their craft, you realize that not only are they good at their craft, but their their heads are screwed on a different way. And, and they have to be because everything they touch is not a masterpiece. In fact, most of the things an artist does is crap. You know, like not every painting is, sells for $10,000. Not every song is a hit and not every, you know, like play is a hit. But they have to have the personality and the drive that says, oh, crap, I'm depressed. I'm going to go out and get drunk or stoned or whatever. But I'm going to drag myself out of bed, you know, in a week or two and, and do it again and constantly do it again. And by the way, most of them never have a hit or sell a famous painting or make a play that makes it onto Broadway or in London or somewhere else. But they do it because they're driven of, of there's something inside of them that forces them to create constantly against all odds. And most of them really don't care about the money. They care about the act of creation. I just described what a founder looks like. Yeah. Uh, and if you, th if you think about that personality, uh, then you can, uh, it, and, and by the way, it, it, we've now engineered it so you don't in in not all cases do you need that personality you could actually figure out how to game a system or some you know play the stock market if you're a hedge fund manager or a quant or something else or i mean there are those equivalents for building startups now but a true founder has that artist personality um you see it in elon musk you, you see it in um uh, you see it in steve you saw it in steve jobs etc um where this there was just something that was different about them than than most people. Does that make sense at all? It does. It does indeed. And one of the, I guess, I guess in lots of the clients that I work with, they're not businesses that are started by somebody like Elon Musk or or Steve Jobs. But often the founders no longer in the business. The fact you know the business is scaled, 
And they, they don't have that clear burning personality with vision and drive and often they've lost touch with their customers. And so that's where, you know, picking your book up again recently and rereading that, whether you're a startup or whether you're a business at scale, you still need to innovate. And it, it doesn't matter where you are, whether you're at the beginning or whether you're partway through the journey, you still need to go and say, who's our customer? What problem are we, are we solving? Why are we relevant? Right. You, you know, and when a company scales, I, I kind of think that the CEO needs to still be in touch with two things. One is they need to be able to talk to customers and they need to be able to demo their own product. And if in fact they're not doing that, then they've either been the head of finance or head of sales who got promoted because they're good at spreadsheets and board presentations. And if I was a shareholder, I would tend to worry. Unless you're the monopolist in the market, you know, given the internet and, and given the rate of change, if you're not constantly in, in touch with your customers, you don't even have to like them, but you've got to know what's going on firsthand. And, and I don't mean you need to spend all day talking to customers or, or playing golf with your most important ones, but getting some sample of, of on a regular basis and not third hand or not even second hand, but actually spending, you know, maybe an hour a week um, being able to do that. And then being able to demo your own product. Uh, I, li- I, like, I, I like the being able to demo your own product. I wonder how many, I certainly know some of my clients would be able to do that, but I don't think all of them could. Yeah, I remember back in the, in the 20th century, uh, there was some product that I think was maybe even getting on the internet for, was a Microsoft was just getting into that, that segment. And and I remember there was some famous memo that was leaked of Bill Gates writing to his own people going, I just tried X or Y. And he went through the whole litany of how hard it was to use or sign on to something. And, and it was like a revelation to him. Well, it wasn't a revelation to his other 10 million customers. <laughs> <laughs> Same thing. Um, but if you remember, you know, Steve Jobs used to demo every product that Apple announced. Uh, notice who demos the products now when Apple announces. <laughs> it's, not, it's not the CEO. And yet again, you know, they're the, one of the most profitable companies in the world. But it is a it is a sign of what is your CEO focusing on is almost a test. If, if they could talk to you about, you know, customers, how they're changing, how they use the product, what they're saying, not third hand. And well, let me show you our latest product. Because the minute you do that, like if the CEO can't use it, uh, you know, I don't care. Really. There's probably few exceptions. Um, you're in trouble because if they don't understand it, they can't manage the good chunk of, you know, what engineering is doing. Or even have a quality conversation with engineering or when the sales team aren't hitting their sales numbers, get a sense of why. Right. So, so I, 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 I again, those are not, you know, ultimate answers, but they're good heuristics for, if I was a CEO and I, could, I couldn't do those and my company is, you know, like between 10 and $100 million, I, I'll, I'll set my watch to how, how long it's going to take until you're going to be the ex-CEO because something's going to break that's going to surprise you in a way that shouldn't. Um, and they usually happen on customers and product. I mean, there are other things that could go bad, supply chain or, you know, your finance people who had their eye off the ball, et cetera. I mean, 
obviously you need to be able to read an income statement, balance sheet, and cash flow, you know, morning, noon, and night. But um, but these other two things I find as companies scale, CEOs kind of lose touch of, and that's losing the fingertip feel about what what allows you to make those changes that are necessary when the company needs to pivot or change or or, or do something that's uh, not instinctual to your rest of your company because what happens is companies as they grow go from teams dedicated to searching for a business model to now stratifying into organizations that are built to execute business models. And the people you hire for execution are very different than the people you hire for search. The people you hire for execution are there for a job. That is, they have a business card, which is actually a virtual link to a job specification, which was made by HR, who said, here's how the model is unfolding, and therefore you go to work to do this. It doesn't say you're there to discover new things or you're there to do something else. And that's how you scale companies. There's nothing bad about that. But, but you do need people, starting with the CEO, who are paranoid about worrying about, well, what happens when the market shifts underneath us or the technology shifts or new opportunities open? Those aren't the 99% of the people that you hired. You hired people for scale. Well, you hired, you hired, people, you hired people who are executing on what we know already to be true. Brilliant. In fact, let me tell you a story. It, it turns out Silicon Valley was named after silicon, the basics of, of making chips, microprocessors, transistors at the time, et cetera. One of the founding companies in, the, in Silicon Valley was a company called Fairchild Semiconductor. And they made the first silicon transistors at scale, not even chips, but one bit at a time. And it was such a hot product, meaning new and exciting and whatever. They could, their manufacturing couldn't keep up with it. Their VP of sales was happy. They'd show up with a, a data sheet that is a product spec, and they give out a sample to a customer who would then like say, yeah, it really does what you said. Oh, great. You know, we'll take 10,000 of them and whatever. But then in their engineering labs, a guy named, you know, Noyce, uh, and another one named Moore, and an, um, another one named, uh, oh, I think Jay Last invented a way to put multiple transistors on a single piece of paper. It was the first, uh, uh, sorry, a single piece of silicon. It was the first chip. And they gave it to sales and said, look, instead of selling one transistor at a time, you could have them, we could give them entire circuits. What do you think the VP of sales said? You uh, well, say that was the, what do you think? I, well, I, I, I want I, your I, listeners I, to think about this too. It, it, they invented integrated circuits. What do you think the VP of sales said? I think the VP of sales says that means I'll earn less money if I sell them. Or, or, the, or he said, I don't think people want to buy them. Nobody's ever asked me for one. Well, well, you kind of got it right. I'll tell you, I'll tell you essentially what he said is over my dead body are we selling this stuff. And the reason why is, and, 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 and I'll explain why this is relevant to your listeners in a second. The reason why is people were grabbing those silicon transistors out of their hands. They knew what to do with them. They were pretty much a replacement for tubes, which was back then. That's what people used. But they could imagine how to, oh, this is easy. We could just plug these in. But gee, these, these chips, that was a different sale. That, that wasn't a, a grab it out of your hands. That required a consultative sale. That now required an application engineer and somebody sitting with a customer, helping them design new things. That, I mean, instead of like, you know, selling a million dollars in a week, 
it was going to take you a year to get to that million dollars, but in but you didn't even have a sales force who knew how to do that. All they knew how to do was here's the, here's the spec sheet and here's the whatever. My point is, is when you invent, you could invent anti-gravity inside your existing company, but your existing sales channel, starting with your VP of sales, might kill it. And it happens time and again. And it's not just your sales. You might have your supply chain or marketeer. If you need to pivot, you need to be prepared to actually make some radical changes in not just who your customers are or what you're selling to them, but your own internal organization. What Fairchild should have done, and, and this happens multiple times, is simply say to the existing VP of sales, you know, you're absolutely right. We're setting up an entirely different sales force to sell this product. Congratulations, don't panic. We'll give you an override. <laughs> this will give you a com commission on their commission so you don't quit and whatever. So the reason I tell you the story is that Fairchild, even though they invented this, the technology, uh, was always a laggard in the integrated circuit business instead of being the market leader. It was because their CEO didn't understand. And, and it's okay. It still happens today. Is that most CEOs don't understand that businesses grow not by just executing your initial idea, but they grow from leaping from opportunity to opportunity that requires pivots, not only on understanding new customers, but also understanding internally what type of organizational changes you need to make. It's a big idea. If you still have the same org chart from a million dollars to $10 million to $100 million, I'd be stunned. And instead of them requiring chaos to make those changes, as a, as a CEO or founder, you ought to realize that the organization needs to grow as you're learning new things about customers and markets and new products. And, and that's painful uh, because, again, you typically, as you scale, hire staff to scale who kind of implicitly believe their title and functions will exist for the rest of their lifetime or the observable universe. <laughs> when, in fact, that, that's not the case for a healthy company. And, and you... And you... The thing that you're putting in to help you scale is almost the antithesis of of what you need to stay flexible and survive. You know, you but you. It's like they, those two things are sort of working uh, so against each other. Right, and so so as companies get larger, um, uh, two professors uh, in the in the twentieth century, Tishman and O'Reilly, one from Stanford, one from I believe MIT or maybe Harvard came up with this idea of an ambidextrous organization, which is a fancy word for a company as it gets larger, needs to understand how to um, chew gum and walk, that is, execute and innovate continuously. Obviously, execution is the core. You know, I have a phrase that execution uh, pays your salary, but innovation will pay your pension. And if you don't have both of them going on simultaneously, you're going to be a one-note company and, and go through that historic, you know, great burst of energy, et cetera, and then eventually decline as the market or customers or technology changes around you and you don't adapt. And, and so building an organization that does that um, is difficult because at times they feel like they're competing with each other. But it is possible to build an ambidextrous organization. And the biggest failure is the one that you mentioned is that by the time you need to build an organization that can innovate and execute, you fired the founder or the founders have cashed out and left. Yet the most successful companies now in the world are those technology companies that are still led by their founder. 
Apple being the exception, or you know, my contention, uh, still living off the fruits of their founder. Um, yeah. But if but eventually, w- without that continuous innovation process, you know, it kind of dies. I mean, best example today is maybe you know Netflix, um, SpaceX, Tesla, etc. That just a con- they basically eat their own with this continuous innovation process. And so, what is it that? None of the skills that you need to do it get you to where you got to, and yeah, that's an individual uh, problem and the CEO, but it's the the corporate problem is bigger. It, it, you know, um, at least in the United States, we're driven by stock price and incentives are all about short term gains, and so if you're focused on short term gains, you'll focus on execution and optimizing execution. Those are the only numbers that matter. If you're focused on on something different, if your eye is on a 30-year prize, or and again, I keep pointing at, at SpaceX, for example, if your goal is to land people on Mars, then you don't really care about, you know, obviously you need to raise money and, and need to build successful companies. Um, or if you're, again, for Tesla, your goal is to move people off of uh, internal combustion engines onto electric vehicles. You have different goals than short-term profits, even though you you will return them and eventually will become the world's most valuable automotive company. But you have a different eye on the prize. Your eye on the prize is not the next quarter. And again, I don't know if this is a problem in in Europe, but in the United States, your board um, is also focused on what are called activist investors, corporate raiders, which we're now looking at. Well, you know, the stock price isn't high enough and we think it's more valuable if we sell off the piece parts and we don't care that you have a 10 year plan, you know, like you're not, you know, we ought to dissemble your, throw out your R and D groups and, and basically just turn them into execution engines, which yes, are more profitable in the short term, but actually, you know, have lay off tens of thousands of people and more importantly, destroy an engine of innovation. So there are outside pressures to CEOs, on top of the one you just mentioned, right? When you're when you're now the manager of a thousand or ten thousand or more people, your skill set, if you were hired, is as a world class executor. It's a great manager of people and processes and whatever. Um, and you nowadays might be able to do what what I call the innovation head nod. You'll you'll nod, you know, when someone says you need some innovation. And you'll kind of quickly ask your chief of staff is, can we buy it in a five-pound bag or does it come in a 10-pound bag without actually understanding what's required to, to build innovation ecosystems? I spend a lot of time working with uh, large companies and particularly uh, actually now with parts of the U.S. government. And this is one of the biggest problems that, that we have is that um, leadership, which in some cases are excellent, for execution in a crisis, which we are in, in multiple places in our government, don't understand the radical changes that are necessary to make in the organizations that they, they've even either inherited or managed. And worse, um, you know, if they want to keep their job, making radical changes is kind of like hard to explain to your shareholders or whatever who are focused or are again on short-term gains or, or there are other institutional obstacles to make that happen. So the answer is, it's hard. It, it's not just a single person problem. It's all these internal and external uh, things that add up to Darwin kind of wins. Um, yeah, it, it's, it's, it, it's, the, it's, that, it's that competition for resources, isn't it? 
You know, it's that it's, you know, the execution bit of the business says, why am I giving up resources to this whim that somebody's got where with no measurable results? Yeah, well, no measurable results in the short term. And it's, yeah, it's not just competition for resources. Imagine you're an artist and you have this blank canvas and it's nighttime. And by the banks of this river, and, and it's maybe the late eight, uh, late 1800s, and you and I walk past the artist, and all we see is dark, and there's a blank canvas. And you go, what are you, what are you painting? It's dark out here. And he goes, oh, wait till the morning. Wait till you see what I paint. And he goes, it's a blank canvas. It's nighttime. What's wrong with you? <laughs> the next day, it's you take a look, and Van Gogh has just painted Starry Night. Or... Or just imagine you would have walked into Michelangelo's studio and saw a 12-foot block of marble. And you go, what? And he says, it's the most beautiful sculpture in the world. And you're seeing a 12-foot block of marble. And he says, come back in a couple of years. And you come back and, and it's a Pieta. Yeah. Well, no, no, it's, it's worse than that. He says, you have to give me several million dollars and come back in a couple of years. And, and then you, for both of these, you go, how'd you do it? And the answer for both of them were the same. You know, I just removed the stone around it. And that's the problem is that visionaries or even CEOs who have this vision when companies are large have a problem in, in describing things they could see. They see a shining city on the hill and you and I just see a hill. You know, they see a finished sculpture and the best of them can create a reality distortion field that will allow investors and employees and competing interests inside of companies to follow them. And in others, they get fired because they can't convince people that this investment is worthwhile. And in a good number of them, they're wrong. You know, most startups fail. Most companies don't last more than 15 years. You know, the average lifetime of a corporation, at least in the United States, have gone from 50 years to 15 years. There's a life cycle to this. And the life cycle is getting shorter because of all these new pressures um, internet competition, technology shifts, etc. And so if you're a CEO of a large company, you need to make a bet is that, you know, am I here for the short term? Well, then great. Make sure, you know, like you, you've optimized. Yeah, execute and make sure you've optimized your comp plan for that. And if you're the board members and that's what you want, then that's what you're going to get. And, and, and by the way, you'll preserve jobs for the short term. Uh, but there's another alternative, which is to say, I want to build a long-term company. I want to build a company that lasts 10, 20, 30 years at least. Then you'll make different decisions. Then you'll make investments in R&D or acquisition or build innovation pipelines or do uh, partnerships or, or open it. I mean, there's a whole list of other things you would do and you wouldn't bury them down in your... You wouldn't have innovation theater where, hey, look, we have an incubator internally. Isn't that great? You'd actually have those hard food fights inside your exec staff about what happens with the output of those incubators or what happens with the things we acquire or things that we're building that actually compete with our own channel, et cetera. Um, that's, the, that's a very different type of CEO and different types of decisions. But it actually goes back to you know, what am I building for? Am I building for the next quarter or optimizing the stock price? Or am I building well, for the long term? I think it's interesting when you when you were talking about Fairchild and saying, you know, what you could have done at Fairchild is 
created a different organization because i remember reading something by reed hastings at netflix where you know they're they're now trying to get into streaming video and the people who are running the dvd business are complaining about but that's not where we are today people are about where we are today and so he said right you can stop coming to the you can stop coming to the staff meeting just go over there and execute whilst we build this other business over here and i just think that people can't do both well here i i disagree i i I, I think they can't do both, but I think the thing we've been missing is to, much like, let's circle all the way back to the lean startup. Once we explained to people what was missing, you know, and gave them some context, you know, a lot of people realized, oh, getting out of the building probably is a good idea. I'll, I'll go all the way back to, let's run the Reed Hastings movie or the Fairchild movie back and say, what if we actually knew what we knew now? And we're able to explain context to both the executors and innovators and said, listen, here's how it's going to play out. You execution guys, you're paying our salaries. You are the most, you're the guys shoveling the coal into the engines of the Titanic. Well, these guys over here, are they're going to feel like you to you that they're like on the promenade deck, but, but we can't make it without the executors and you innovators, you know, unless you appreciate those executors, we don't have a company. But you executors, the fact that you're still going to be employed in five years, it's because these innovators are going to be building new stuff that we haven't even thought about yet. And so we need to work together because you're going to need stuff from each other. And very few companies do that because they don't have the context of, oh, I get it. Instead of a food fight or how do we, which division is better? They don't understand that it's a natural. And but by the way, to, to the executors, I, I would point to the innovators and say, in five years, they're going to be the executors and there's going to be a new group standing on the promenade deck. That this is a natural evolution of a healthy company that, that lasts for decades. But if we get into this food fight now, then we're not going to last very long at all because the executors will feel pissed off and unloved and the innovators will find obstacles in their path and they'll have to raise a pirate flag like the Mac group without understanding in the 21st century that this should just be a natural evolution that everybody kind of gets. Oh yeah, we're on the execution team. We're paying your salary. Oh yeah, we're on the innovation team. We're gonna pay your pension and then we're gonna be the executors. And then there'll be another generation of innovators. That's not a hard concept, but no one explains it that way because that is what's going on here. Yeah, it's, it, it's compellingly simple and yet, and yet when people are in it, I don't think, do you know what I mean? That you're, you're, you're in. You're... Because the leadership hasn't embraced that that is the model they need to explain, coach, and lead on. Right? Uh-huh. It's a big idea. If, if a CEO goes, oh, yeah, this is a natural evolution. Listen, guys, let me get you all on the exec staff, and we're going to go through this in every meeting and there might be one or two of you where you're going to sit there with crossed arms and like, you know, okay, I'm going to give you one or two meetings. And after that, you're going to be the ex-employee. But the rest of you are going to go buy into this evolutionary process where we all have like just essential roles. But we need to understand what that big picture is. That's what leadership is, is that, you know, we're going to get all aligned around this context. It's not that you have to be an innovator and executor, you've got to just appreciate which part of the company you're in. Um, yeah. That's, that's the role of a CEO. 
Steve, if I, you you said they rerun the movie, so if we rerun the Steve Blank movie, what what is it that you know now that you wish you'd known earlier? Well, if I knew the lean startup method, I wouldn't have done eight startups. I would have done four. <laughs> On the other hand, you know, the lean methodology came out of some of the, the I, I had craters so deep, they left their own iridium layer. I mean, that's, you know, it was out of those failures rather than the successes that, that made me actually think about lean methodology, a much longer story. Um, I don't think, you know, the nice part is I live my life uh, in a way that I don't have to go back and, and say, I could, I should, I would have, you know, like everybody, as you're a, I was a rapacious, relentless entrepreneur. You kind of wish you would have treated people better uh, on your way to, to, to success. I'm glad I had a family later. So I got to see my kids grow up. Um, I, I had lots of role models who were great at work who, who didn't do that. And so it was a model for me. You know, there's not many things I regret. Uh, life turned out, uh, uh, given where I started, life turned out pretty well. And, and um, y- you know, the things I remind my students and, and uh, people I work with is, not only do you want to think about success, but, you know, as you live your life, you need to think about um, service, whether you serve your God, your country, your community, or your family. And so so life is not just about work. It's, it's also about um about thinking about who who else you serve. And I've also made that part of my life as well. Um, I think that's pretty important for for your listeners to consider as we're thinking about the business side. Think about the other part of your life. Well, it's it's interesting. I I would, uh, I think that's been part of of many of the most successful people I've met is that they've that that's actually been a key piece of, well, because you said earlier, people don't care about the money. So you, nobody has the drive to do anything unless you care about something. And if it's not money, you have to care about, you have to care about something. And often for people, that's the doing it in service of others. Steve, what, um, how many books have you written now? Um, you, you know, I, I, I think I have three published, but there are two that really matter. And of course, that's the epiphany, um, which was this book that kind of kicked off the customer development model, um, some of the lean concepts, and then the startup owner's manual which kind of uh, 10 years later uh, talked about all three parts of, of customer development, agile engineering and, and business model canvas and more of a step-by-step guide rather than a, rather than a book. And, and the four steps in startup owner's manual are still, uh, you know, decades out, still quite relevant reading, I think. Oh, well, I, I was saying to you before we started recording, I, I re-listened to four steps of the epiphany uh, a couple of weeks ago and it's, it doesn't go out of date. Pretty amazing, huh? It's, uh, <laughs> and, and, and pretty amazing because I wasn't writing for anybody but myself to try to explain something that just had never been codified before. Your phrase when we started this conversation. Yeah. Um, and, um, and, and as I, as I said, uh, I'm, um, I, I, I never used the word before, but I think it, it was a revolution. And, and that is lean was a revolution in, in basically the the milestone in the beginning of what I would call modern entrepreneurship. That is, there was a world before where the capstone thing you did was how to write a business plan. And now there's a very different world. At least those who have engaged in it realize that, no, eventually we might need to write a plan, uh, but we actually might want to do some planning before the plan. And that is the beginning of the world of modern entrepreneurship. And that book, I'd say, 
is probably the place where I would put the stake in the ground and say the world changed from then. And, and obviously that wasn't the intent, but that seemed to be the result. Very good. And, and what, what other books do you think that you've read that have made a difference to you or that you think uh, other people should pick up? Well, I think also Timeless, which actually um, made me, as I said, when I, when I wrote The Four Steps of the Epiphany, I read all the existing literature. But, but the one that was a tipping point for me was Clayton Christensen's Innovator's Dilemma, which yeah. is still uh, just, it, it, it is timeless. And Christensen, you know, we all stood on his shoulders, um, uh, though his focus was on um, corporate innovation and, uh, and uh, entrepreneurship. Uh, and the nature of uh, disruption, I learned a ton by by just reading everything he wrote. And so I would just say, if you haven't read Christensen, um, you might want to revisit, um, you know, Innovator's Dilemma and Innovator's Solution. Um, still timeless. Any any others? Well, obviously, uh, you know, Eric Reese's book, Lean Startup, uh, uh-huh. uh, Alexander Osterbolder's uh, Business Model Generation, you ought to be able to draw the business model canvas without looking at the book if you're a modern <laughs> entrepreneur. And then everything else that followed from him, he's written a series, but probably the most important one is value proposition design. Um, and, and then uh, testing business model ideas. And those three of his are, are incredibly, uh, they ought to be on everybody's shelf. And, and then there are now hundreds and thousands of, of, of literally great books on lean and agile and, and, uh, um, UI, UX, etc. Um, and, and have you read anything? Have you read anything recently that doesn't pertain to entrepreneurship that you thought, God, that was a good book? Well, you know, I'm as I mentioned, I'm working with uh, uh, government agencies. One of them, uh, the U.S. Department of Defense, and there was a book called The Kill Chain, um, which was uh, really an interesting observation about uh, what's happened to the. United States and uh, uh, the Western world and vis-a-vis China um, in, in terms of uh, technology and, uh, and innovation in, in the defense realm. Um, Reed Hastings' new book uh, is a great read. Um, and I'm no, blanking on no Rules, Rules? Yeah, that, that was good. Uh, Safi Bakal's uh, book, Loon Shots, which is about a year or two old, um, is basically uh, trying to codify how skunk works uh, work. Lots of others uh, as well, but as I said, there's just a pile of great literature out there. Steve, that's brilliant. Thank you very much indeed uh, for giving me your time and coming on the show today. Great, thanks for having. Thank you for listening. I hope you enjoyed that as much as I did. If you'd be kind enough to leave a review, it will really help other like-minded entrepreneurs find this podcast and grow our community. For all information relating to this episode, you can go to monkhouseandcompany.com forward slash podcast, where you'll find some cracking show notes, additional reading and links relating to our guest. There you can also find my blog and past episodes of my subjectively not crap newsletter, where I'll update you on the best articles I read that week, some recommended books and other podcasts. Thanks, and I will see you next week.